Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors, who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Robert Einhorn. One of the main reasons I wanted to create this podcast series was to highlight the work of senior and mid-level officials who clocked thousands of flight miles and hundreds of hours negotiating with Chinese counterparts. Bob Einhorn is the perfect exemplar of such an official. Einhorn spent his career in the United States government on the extremely technical and meddlesome issues of arms control and non-proliferation. In the foreign and defense policy communities, there is general agreement that nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons and their missile delivery systems, that is, WMD, are so destructive and destabilizing that their technologies need to be strictly controlled by international agreements. Unfortunately, the China that emerged in the late 1970s from the ravages of Maoist doctrine and the Cultural Revolution was not particularly concerned with Western concepts of arms control, security, or nonproliferation. Through much of the 1990s, Bob Einhardt, the State Department, and his colleague Gary Seymour at the White House spent those hundreds of hours with Chinese counterparts blocking specific technology transfers to rogue regimes like Syria, Libya, Iran, and North Korea. In the process, the Chinese leadership slowly changed the nation's policies and signed up to international non-proliferation agreements and norms. This Chinese change in policy made the U.S. and the world more safe and secure. At the end of the 1990s, India and Pakistan dramatically increased the risk of war with tit-for-tat nuclear tests, the crossing of a dangerous threshold for those new members of the nuclear club. Here's President Clinton at the time. So again, I ask India to halt its nuclear weapons program and join the 149 other nations that have already signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And I ask Pakistan to exercise restraint to avoid a perilous nuclear arms race. The big question for the region and for the world was, would China use its newfound appreciation for the global non-proliferation regime to help calm tensions in South Asia? In his discussion with me, Einhorn talks about his efforts to limit dangerous WMD technology, about his nickname in China, and about China's role in the 1998 South Asia nuclear standoff. Bob Einhorn, thanks so much for making time. I wanted to start with your background, your career. You got your um, uh, master's from the Woodrow Wilson School at uh, Princeton. Uh, And then you started to work on this thing called arms control. Could you just explain at that time why in the 1970s that was an important issue to work on and how you ended up going to the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, or ACT as it was known? Well, it was somewhat serendipitous uh, because at the Woodrow Wilson School, uh, my roommate uh, was a Canadian uh, whose father was head of the disarmament division at the UN Secretariat in New York. Because of anti-nepotism rules, he couldn't hire his son, but he could hire his son's roommate. So I went to work at the UN in New York. I was there for only 16 months. Um, One of my bosses was a Russian undersecretary general who liked to harass the American on his staff 
by uh, providing only 30-day contracts, and he would wait till the 29th day to renew. So this was not very good. Uh, but in the course of my work in New York, I met uh, uh, American diplomats uh, who came up to New York for various meetings. Uh, one of them uh, was uh, James Leonard, Ambassador James Leonard of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency at the time, and he brought me down to Washington uh, to work there. I started there in 72, and I, uh, I, w I worked at the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency for about 14 years till about 1986. Um. I'd love to hear about that that work, but would you say you learned something from your Russian superior about negotiating strategy by only turning over contracts at the last moment? Well, uh, I learned that uh, you know, th this was a time when detente was beginning to break out between the United States and the Soviet Union in the real world, uh, but it hadn't broken out uh, within the UN Secretariat. Uh, the Russians enjoyed uh, uh, harassing uh, Americans on the staff. Uh, it was also kind of a nest of spies for the Russians. I mean, they put a lot of KGB officers into their uh, into the UN Secretariat. Uh, you can tell the KGB officers uh, they were the ones who uh, would take breaks and they would walk uh, together, whispering down the corridors. They assumed that all of their offices were bugged and so they would engage in conversations only during quarter walks. The, you know, I learned these essentials uh, when I was at the UN. Do they also drive nicer cars and wear nicer clothes? Uh, I didn't. I don't. Didn't follow them outside the office, so I couldn't. I couldn't testify to that. So you came to the Arms Control Disarmament Agency. Talk a little at that time about what U.S. policy was and why arms control was important, and in the context of detente. Well, uh, this was uh, a time when the SALT talks were just getting underway, these strategic arms limitation talks between the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, there was a dawning um, recognition, and this, of course, was after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, that we needed to stabilize this strategic relationship, uh, that simply piling more arms on top of the last batch uh, was not uh, strengthening our security. Uh, that mutual and verifiable limitations uh, on strategic arms could be in the security interests of both sides. This was uh, becoming kind of uh, a, a growing conventional wisdom. Henry Kissinger uh, was a strong proponent of this, and he was the main architect. And when you say strategic arms, just so we're clear, you're talking about nuclear weapons and the missile delivery systems? Yes, nuclear weapons and the U.S. and Soviet uh, triads. Uh, these were uh, intercontinental range ballistic missiles, submarine-based ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers. Thanks. Sorry. So at your time, what were you working on? What did you start working on? What, what unnatural acts did you begin to do? Well, I, uh, in my time at uh, ACTA, I worked on all of the issues. I started off on multilateral arms control. I was at a Geneva committee. Uh, it was at that time a 25-nation committee. It's expanded since then. Uh, it had just negotiated the Biological Weapons Convention. I was there for... Um, the negotiation of the little-known uh, uh, environmental modification uh, convention, but it's worked on chemical weapons, arms control, the comprehensive test ban, the multilateral. Uh, I did that for a number of years. Uh, then I 
shifted to nonproliferation at ACTA uh, from uh, 78 uh, to set late 79. There were trilateral comprehensive test ban treaty negotiations. The United States, the Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom I worked on that. That didn't succeed in getting a treaty that came a couple of decades later. Uh, and then in the 1980s, uh, I started working on strategic uh, arms control, arms reductions, uh, the STAR talks, uh, INF, the, the Intermediate Range a Nuclear Force uh, Agreement, uh, which uh, doesn't have a very good future uh, at, the, at the present time. So I worked on all of these things, and uh, in 1986, uh, I moved from the Arms Control Disarmament Agency to the State Department, and I was a member of the State Department Policy Planning Staff for about six years. Right, and also looking at these sorts of issues of um, arms control, arms limitation, and nonproliferation. Could you kind of just disentangle those two or... or or discuss the, how one prepares for the other? Well, um, arms control has to do with existing arms, uh, either trying to establish certain limitations uh, or reductions in existing nuclear arms. Uh, or it doesn't have to be nuclear. The Chemical Weapon Convention uh, uh, abolished all chemical weapons, or at least tried to. Uh, whereas nonproliferation has to do with the spread of capabilities, uh, the spread to additional countries, whether it's nuclear nonproliferation, which is now governed largely by the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, uh, chemical weapons, uh, also uh, uh, it has a, both a disarmament dimension and a nonproliferation dimension to chemical weapons and so forth. But basically that's the divide. Nonproliferation has to do with the spread of capability. Arms control and disarmament deals with limitation and reduction of existing capability. So you had mentioned your move from the Arms Control Disarmament Agency to the State Department in the 1980s. Um, at that time, working at State, how much of your time was spent dealing with the Soviet Union or dealing with allied countries or dealing with countries like China? Well, uh, in, the, in the 80s, I spent a lot of time dealing with the Soviet Union. Uh, there was still, you know, the East-West competition was still, uh, you know, a central strategic matter uh, for the United States. Uh, so that was critical. But in dealing with the Soviet Union, uh, you also had to deal with your allies. Uh, you know, when I was involved in the INF uh, treaty matters, um, it had to do with uh, NATO and NATO capabilities. So you were constantly uh, consulting with your uh, NATO allies. And where did uh, China or didn't China figure really into any of this? I mean, the East-West rivalry was in the areas you were talking about, largely the US Soviet Union and then kind of tending to allies and that relationship. China had um, has had nuclear weapons for four decades now. How did they figure in to your discussions um, at that time in the 80s? Well, in the 80s, they didn't figure very much. Um, uh, they, rhetorically, they didn't even support nonproliferation. Uh, their position, rhetorically, uh, was to support proliferation. They actually said that uh, proliferation uh, was going to break the hegemony of the superpower. So that was a good thing. Um, 
And uh, China, if you ask China, uh, were they prepared to uh, limit or reduce their own nuclear capabilities, they tell you to go jump in the lake. Uh, here, the superpowers, the United States and Soviet Union, had uh, had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, and you know they were just a beginner in comparison. And they said that uh, they weren't uh, ready to uh, to restrain their own capabilities. So China was not very much a factor uh, in uh, arms control thinking uh, of at that time. Although obviously the United States government monitored very carefully. Uh, the progress they were making in their nuclear capabilities. Right. So um, where China is on this kind of non-proliferation arc, uh, I think you described it quite well in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, they signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, I want to say, in 93, 94? The early 90s, no. they really made the turn. Uh, 92, uh, they joined the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, they recognized that they had to begin to establish a you know position of greater respectability and then an international system in part to live down uh, the reputational hit they took at uh, Tiananmen um, and uh, so they began to uh, recognize the importance of some of these international norms whether it's in trade or non-proliferation uh, and they actively uh, became interested in learning about these international conventions and joining them. Uh, and, you know, the, the NPT was, I think, the critical one. And just the NPT, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, what's the basis of it? What's the kind of core of it that you think attracted the Chinese to it? And what, what are the obligations of it? Well, uh, you know, the Chinese made quite a turnaround. I mentioned earlier uh, that they... You know, in the 70s and part of the 80s actually supported proliferation. Uh, they, they came around to the view uh, that uh, non-proliferation was in their interest. Uh, they were uh, one of the five recognized nuclear weapon states, uh, and they understood uh, that not having other nuclear armed states around their periphery uh, was good for their security. So they began to internalize this notion uh, that uh, a world of many nuclear weapon states was not a world China would feel comfortable living in. And so they began to internalize uh, these nonproliferation norms. Um, and I, I want to get to some of the nuclear nonproliferation issues, but before that, I. I I'd be curious to hear your telling of uh, a rather well-known chemical weapons-related event, which was the Yinhe um, incident. Uh, I presume at that time you were at state. I was state. I was no. I was a, a deputy assistant secretary in the political military bureau. Um, I could speak for a long time on this subject. I'll just I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. Um, we had information uh, from our intelligence community uh, that uh, a shipment of chemical-related goods uh, were on board uh, a, uh, a Chinese vessel called the Yinhe. Uh, we uh, demarched the Chinese government. We went to the Chinese government and said, we have reliable information that this, uh, these chemicals are on board uh, this ship and they're destined to Iran's chemical weapon program. Um, 
the Chinese said they would look into this uh, charge. Um, I got a call. It was a Saturday morning. I was at home uh, from uh, Ambassador uh, Stapleton Roy, State Roy, uh, who said, uh, Bob, uh, I just uh, was called into the foreign ministry. Um, they said they looked into the matter, uh, and the goods uh, that we allege uh, are on board that ship are not on board that ship. Uh, they are prepared to have Americans board that ship uh, and wow. determine for themselves that the goods are not on board. Uh, Ambassador Roy said to me, Bob, you know what that means? I said, what, what does that mean, Stape? He said, it means the goods are not on board. Uh, that means we should drop this, uh, this, uh, this matter. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, there's a long story that goes on with this. The intelligence community was confident that the goods were on board. We went through an agonizing process of uh, having uh, inspectors board the ship at a Saudi port uh, in the Persian Gulf. This is after the ship left uh, China. The, the ship left, left China. Uh, it got to uh, a port, Dharan, I think it was. Uh, we had Americans take a look. They searched it. Uh, it took them days and days and days. And this was not a small ship. It was a huge container ship. Uh, and uh, sure enough, the goods were not there. It was egg on our face. Uh, later, we found out. We did a post-mortem, and we found out the goods never made it on board. Um, I'll tell, uh, I'll tell a, a secret. Um, the, um, what happened was the intelligence community got hold of the manifest, the ship's manifest, and saw the goods were listed there uh, and assumed with 100% confidence that they were there. Uh, when we did the post-mortem, we went to uh, uh, companies involved in merchant shipping and so forth, and they thought it was hysterical that we relied on this uh, manifest Why to give us proof. Because, uh, you know, often, you know, uh, goods are listed on manifest, they never arrive, and, and so forth. And uh, they're rarely an accurate reflection of all the cargo on board. Um, we later found out, our intelligence community uh, determined, uh, that the goods were destined for the yin he, but they didn't arrive on time. Uh, so that's what happened. It was egg on our face, and uh, for the, for several years after that, every time I went to the Chinese with some accusation about what was you know what they were doing, could they investigate? They would say, "Remember the yin he." So let's go to that, those interactions in which the Chinese would bring this up. Maybe starting in the mid nineteen nineties, the Chinese and Pakistani. Uh, weapons cooperation became quite, it had been robust for many years, mm -hmm. and it came to the attention of the United States that this is something that was kind of uh, dangerous. Could you talk a little bit about your role in trying to address the PRC, Pakistan um, weapons relationship and what the U.S. goals were in, in trying to address it? This, uh, the Chinese-Pakistani relationship uh, was very strong. It had been for a long time. Uh, in fact, uh, before uh, China uh, joined the NPT, uh, it had provided Pakistan 
uh, enough highly enriched uranium to build two nuclear weapons. Uh, it also provided designs of a nuclear weapon to Pakistan. Uh, these would have been clear-cut violations of the NPT had China been a member of the NPT at the time. So the relationship was very strong. It was strategic. Um, we, got, we got information that uh, China had provided Pakistan uh, uh, ballistic missiles, short-range missiles, uh, M11s. Um, and uh, we raised this uh, with the Chinese. And, um, you know, they initially denied it, and then they had to recognize that we had pretty good information. Uh, we and when you say this was raised, this was at an ambassador level? This was their ambassador here? Well, it was raised at, you know, at, at the foreign ministry level from our embassy. Uh, I would raise it with Chinese officials in Washington, and then it got elevated. Uh, to the level of, to the ministerial level uh, with Warren Christopher, uh, raising it with his uh, counterpart. Uh, this became very contentious. Um, we ended up uh, sanctioning uh, China, imposing uh, uh, sanctions on China. Uh, but there were two uh, levels of sanctions. There were um, lower and a, a much more severe level. Uh, we, um, I think, um, were prepared to give the Chinese a bit of a pass. Uh, we sank, sa sanctioned them for the lesser offense, and the sanctions were less severe. And we did that um, uh, because, uh, first of all, we knew uh, that, uh, that any imposition of sanctions uh, would affect China. Uh, they didn't like the uh, repu reputational hit they took with any sanctions, and they would uh, perhaps the sa these sanctions would give us a lever uh, to get uh, better uh, Chinese uh, behavior, and I think it did. Uh, the information we had uh, was that uh, the initial transfer was of 34 uh, missiles, uh, and that the plan was to transfer well over 90 missiles. Uh, and we negotiated with them, and basically we said, we'll drop the sanctions we have imposed uh, if you provide no more uh, full ground-to-ground -ground missiles. Um, and they agreed. And so we, th we think what we achieved in that uh, is that uh, the supply was cut off at 34 and didn't uh, go to the full amount. Now. Um, uh, the administration was heavily criticized for this. Uh, for accepting? For, for, for accepting this deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they thought, first of all, we should have imposed much more draconian sanctions in the first place. Uh, and why were we relieving um, uh, China of these uh, sanctions simply because they agreed you know, to do no more? Anyway, we thought it was a, you know, a pragmatic solution, but the administration was heavily criticized nonetheless. So moving from that to also with Pakistan to um, ring magnets and the role that kind of that played in the bilateral U.S.-China, but then in, the, in the, the relationship that China had with Pakistan, why was that important and what was the kind of goal there? Well, what happened was a Chinese company uh, provided uh, ring magnets that, you know, they're, they're just what they sound like. They're circular magnets. Uh, that they were used in uh, uranium enrichment centrifuges uh, in uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. 
uh, it was not a huge, uh, the, the, you know, ring magnets, they're magnets. They're not terribly sophisticated technology, but they're useful in this uh, process. And enriching uranium, just to be clear, to make fissile material for nuclear weapons. Yeah, it, it spins uh, natural uranium to the point where they are, uh, that the uranium could be used in a nuclear weapon. Uh, the uh, it, it turns out uh, this uh, transaction was only worth seventy thousand dollars, which is you know chicken feed in the world of uh, nuclear weapons proliferation. Um, and but we had good information of who sold it um, and where it went, and uh, so uh, this became a very controversial question between uh, us and the Chinese. This was raised at the highest levels. And it resulted uh, in um, the imposition of pretty strong sanctions. Uh, the United States cut off China for, for, from export-import bank loans for about three months, and this really shocked uh, the Chinese. If you remember, in '96, uh, there was a dust-up between U.S. and China over uh, Taiwan, um, the elections in Taiwan, uh, the Chinese... Uh, fired ballistic missiles uh, around the island. The United States sent two carrier task forces uh, to the Taiwan Strait. It was a very tense situation, and in the middle of this tense situation, I went to Beijing <laughs> to try to resolve the ring magnet crisis. It was not the right uh, political environment to solve this, but eventually uh, we managed, I think by 96, uh, we managed to, to get a commitment uh, from the uh, Chinese uh, that they would not make any uh, transfers to unsafeguarded nuclear facilities in Pakistan or anywhere else. Unsafeguarded means that they were not subject to uh, verification, uh, monitoring by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, so uh, again, this was controversial, um, but uh, we had pretty reliable information. I won't disclose how we had this information, but we had pretty reliable information uh, that this $70,000 transfer uh, was not blessed by uh, central authorities in Beijing. They didn't even know about it. Uh, this was just uh, an, a, uh, uh, an organization, a company uh, in China uh, that uh, had established relationship with the Pakistanis. Uh, they continued uh, to make uh, transfers like this. Uh, and uh, we, we think it actually, this, the controversy surrounding the ring magnets had a very salutary effect uh, because it heightened uh, uh, Beijing authorities' uh, consciousness uh, that if you know, these entities around China uh, made these irresponsible transfers uh, without central authorities' knowledge, uh, then this could redound to the disadvantage of China, and it gave them incentive uh, to clamp down more, to exercise greater control uh, over all of these uh, commercial entities in China. You had mentioned when you went there it was not a great time because of broader U.S.-China frictions. Could you just give a flavor of what that visit was like? I, I, I seem to remember a lot of lectures uh, earlier on, probably in the early 90s, of how the U.S. sold weapons to Taiwan, and so China should be able to kind of sell whatever it wants to whomever it wants. 
Can you just describe what a kind of tough negotiation session feels like with China when you show up there and you're not particularly welcome? Well, um, it, it's funny you say I'm not particularly, I wasn't particularly welcome. Uh, the Chinese uh, had a name for me. Uh, they, uh, Ya Yi, uh, that's, uh, my pronunciation probably isn't right. It's perfect. Uh, but it means the dentist. Um, and uh, the reason they called me the dentist was that I was going there constantly. I was averaging about six trips to China each year uh, to uh, essentially accuse them of making irresponsible uh, uh, technology transfers uh, to countries. And I would uh, share with them uh, information that we had. It was quite accusatory. They didn't, they didn't like it. They especially didn't like it when they found out that our accusations were accurate. In fact, this was this was happening. Sometimes my our meetings were pretty confrontational, um, and uh, we dealt mostly with the foreign ministry. Why do you think the foreign ministry? Sorry to cut you off because mm -hmm. I want to hear the context of it. Why do you think the foreign ministry agreed to take the meetings if it was so unpleasant for them, well, like going to the dentist? Well, uh, often. Um, they didn't agree to take the meetings. Uh, we would press them to schedule a meeting, and they would be very reluctant. Uh, but you know, also the Chinese, you know, they wanted a better relationship with the United States. Uh, they knew that it was the United States that could confer on them a kind of legitimacy in this area of nonproliferation and so forth. So uh, eventually, they had to accept a visit from the dentist, and they and they did. Um, but you know they could be quite confrontational, and often I would uh, I would go there. Uh, I would make a presentation about information we had that China was making this uh, irresponsible transfer, uh, and then I would await a response. But in, instead of getting uh, ga getting a response to my concern, uh, they would take the floor uh, and say, "Mr. Einhorn, you've raised." Uh, what you consider to be a nonproliferation concern to the United States. Now, I want to raise a nonproliferation concern to China, and that is your irresponsible uh, sale of arms to uh, Taiwan, a province of China. And, you know, often uh, this would be almost a filibuster. Uh, they could speak for an hour, an hour and a half on the history of the Taiwan problem and why the United States was violating its commitments by continuing to sell arms to Taiwan. So it got pretty contentious. Uh, and uh, you know, often when we would provide information uh, to the uh, Chinese, we had gotten clearance from the U.S. intelligence community to provide this information. Uh, sometimes uh, we didn't. The, the intelligence community would not want to divulge too much to the Chinese for fear of losing uh, the source of the information, whether it was a human source or a technical source, and so forth. But we would provide this information, and often the Chinese would say, you know, without even looking into it, uh, this is groundless, baseless. Uh, this is just intended to smear uh, China and its export control system and so forth. So that was their going in negotiating that was, position. That was, that, that, was, was that was kind of their default yeah. opening uh, position. 
Uh, and uh, then, you know, sometimes uh, we get different kinds of responses, often after, you know, one week, four weeks, and so forth. Sometimes we got no, never, never got a response whatsoever. Uh, but sometimes they would say, we looked into this, and your information was not specific enough for us to conduct a, uh, a serious investigation, so we're sorry. Or they'd say, we look into this, and we found that your information was totally baseless. Uh, but every once in a while, they'd say, we looked into this, uh, your information was accurate, and we have uh, notified the Chinese entity that it should not go forward with this, uh, with this uh, transaction. So it was kind of a mixed, uh, a mixed bag. You had to keep at it. And sometimes over lunch or something like that, the Chinese uh, foreign ministry officials would confide in us and say, look, you've put us in a very difficult situation. Uh, we are not responsible, you know, we, the foreign ministry people, we're not responsible for any transactions like this. Uh, and you ask us to go to the organizations that were involved in the transaction and, you know, accuse them of something. Um, and they, you know, they don't want to be receptive. They accuse us of being on the American side. So please, you know, come to us as infrequently as possible because uh, you put us in a very uh, awkward situation. I remember uh, there was one uh, particular official, I won't name him in this uh, interview, um, whom I dealt with uh, for a number of years, a very you know, uh, self-confident, cantankerous kind of guy. Uh, and uh, we were together. We had, It was some kind of a track 1.5, track 2 meeting in Hawaii, and we were there having a beer. And he says, you know, Bob, uh, when you would provide us this information and we would come back to you and say, you know, we looked to it, into it as baseless, I can tell you that many of the times it was accurate information. Uh, but uh, I was told, you know, by another agency that I couldn't uh, convey that to you, that I had to tell you that was baseless. But actually, much of your information was accurate. So some of the meetings were performance art on the Chinese government side. They, they could present a strong face to the foreigner who was coming in. But they themselves actually knew what, what was truthful. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, sometimes... Uh, we didn't provide them enough information for them to investigate. I mean, the intelli our, our intelligence community uh, would give us the bare minimum. So we go to the Chinese and we say, uh, we understand there's a sensitive shipment that's leaving Shanghai on Tuesday going to Iran. Could you look into this? And they would say, how in the world are we going to look into it with that One little of the information? the largest container points of the world, yeah. sure, Shanghai. So, so um, but, um, no, but they were... Um, uh, you know, I, I think I think the foreign ministry tried its best uh, to uh, to look into our uh, our concerns. So, moving from the mid '90s to a few years later, uh, Jiang Zemin was coming here in 1997 as really um, a way to elevate the Chinese China U.S. China relationship. Um, first visit since the Tiananmen Square crackdown of a Chinese leader and making sure that visit went well was extremely important and nonproliferation and Chinese views and policies towards it were, were important as well. Can you talk how you get from uh, the dentist and this contentious relationship to how you used a presidential visit to really advance U.S. policy? 
Well, the, the visit was scheduled for, I believe it was October 97, about six months before, um, in early uh, 97, uh, I was called to a White House meeting and uh, with a number of people in the trade area, uh, you know, across the board working on China. And we were told that uh, there's going to be this uh, summit and uh, the president, uh, President Clinton, uh, wanted to make this a success. Uh, and there were a number of important negotiations that had to take place between then and the summit to get a number of agreements which could be announced at the time of the summit. So we were you know, given our marching orders you know, to work on this, see what we could do. Uh, one by one, these uh, prospective agreements fell away uh, till uh, in uh, September uh, only the negotiation I was involved in was left as a potential deliverable for the summit. And let me briefly explain what it was about. Uh, in uh, 1985, uh, the United States and China uh, negotiated an agreement for civil nuclear cooperation, which would allow the United, Stale United States to sell reactors to China. Uh, but soon thereafter, it was found that China was uh, engaged in very irresponsible transfers to Pakistan. The U.S. Congress uh, passed a new law that said uh, the executive cannot implement this agreement for cooperation with China until the president can make certain certifications, including that China was not engaged in uh, proliferation-related activity. And we could not make that. Uh, that uh, certification for a number of years. So the negotiation I was involved in was designed to get certain nonproliferation commitments from China uh, that would enable uh, President Clinton to make this certification and enable American companies like Westinghouse to sell reactors to China. So that was, that was the negotiation. And we were asking the Chinese to do a number of things, including to completely cut off any nuclear cooperation with Iran, which was becoming a big, a big problem, uh, to uh, adopt a very, a very uh, effective uh, export control system, to join the, it was called the Zanger Committee. It was a, a nuclear nonproliferation export uh, committee. Uh, and a number of other things. So uh, we were engaged in this discussion for about uh, six months, and we were making some progress. But when September came, you know, we had about a month left, and the White House was on our back to get this going. No, we were also under pressure from industry. Uh, Westinghouse wanted to be able to sell reactors to what they saw as a huge uh, China nuclear market. And so we were, you know, we were under the gun. And I remember the month of September was, was quite a month. Uh, this was my schedule. Um, I would uh, get on a plane with my delegation on a Saturday. We'd arrive in Beijing on Sunday. We'd negotiate uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We'd get back on a plane, go back to Washington. Friday, uh, we'd have an interagency meeting, what we'd accomplished, what our instructions are for the next week. Saturday, we'd get back on a plane. So. Uh, I did this three weeks in a row. My delegation and I did this three weeks in a row. And uh, at the end of it, I, you know, I just couldn't sleep. Uh, I went to the doctor. He said, um, I'll, I'll give you the non-technical word for it. Your body clock is broken. Uh, but um, notwithstanding the, uh, the sacrifice to my sleep, 
uh, we managed to work out a, uh, a deal uh, with, the, uh, with the Chinese. Uh, they agreed uh, not to engage in any uh, new nuclear cooperation with Iran. They agreed to phase out two uh, relatively small existing projects uh, within a you know, short period of time. Civilian nuclear projects. Civilian nuclear projects. Um, and the Chinese did a lot, by the way. I mean, uh, the Iranians wanted a, uh, a uh, reactor that was optimized for the production of plutonium. The Chinese canceled that. The Chinese uh, had um, plans uh, to build two nuclear reactors uh, in Iran. They canceled those. Uh, they were they had already transferred, unfortunately, blueprints for a uranium conversion facility. This is a facility to take kind of rough uranium yellow cake and convert it into uh, uranium gas to be used in centrifuges. Uh, the when the uh, Chinese uh, reached an agreement with us, they cut the Iranians off. But they'd already, unfortunately, transferred blueprints, and the Iranians were able to turn those blueprints into a factory. But we know the Chinese cut them off because we found out the Iranians later sued them for the breach of uh, contract. And this became a contentious issue between China and Iran, but it, uh, it, it, it confirmed for us that the Chinese were serious about cutting Iran off. Anyway, so we reached this agreement. Um, it was announced at the Clinton-Jiang Zemin uh, summit meeting, uh, and um, uh, U.S. industry was free then to compete for, uh, for the sale of nuclear reactors. So in kind of looking <coughs> back over those very intense months and weeks, what do you think the U.S. got right, and what do you think motivated China to kind of come to the table and meet what were U.S. security requirements or requests? Well, there were a number of incentives the Chinese had. One, they wanted a successful summit. As you mentioned, this is the first you know visit of a, a Chinese leader in a long, long time, the first summit uh, of this uh, type. Um, this was China on the world stage, and they wanted to make it successful. Um, but uh, also, there was a commercial incentive also. The Chinese wanted to rely uh, more and more heavily on nuclear energy, nuclear power. Uh, and they really believed um, that uh, the American nuclear industry had the best products. They very much wanted to cooperate uh, with uh, American uh, nuclear industry. And this was essential to allow that to happen. One of one of the things we did, we uh, our delegation, we would meet with Chinese nuclear energy officials, uh, who really had a stake uh, in getting an agreement that would permit cooperation with U.S. nuclear industry, and we think uh, that uh, they became an important lobbying force on our behalf, essentially within the Chinese system. They were they we believe they said to the Chinese uh, central authorities. Look, can't you give these commitments to the Americans? It would open up uh, the opportunity for ve you know very beneficial nuclear cooperation with the United States. Uh, and then President Clinton reciprocated by going to China the following year, um, 1998. Uh, and I think I was saying both of those times I was working down at the NSC and kind of working on the back end of, of making some of those things happen. What was the nonproliferation agenda the subsequent year that you guys were working on? Well, you know, part of it was implementation of the earlier agreements. 
And, you know, with the Chinese, it's not a state, straight line progress, you know, all the way. Um, there is, uh, I used to say, two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it was one step forward, two steps back. Um, you know, we made progress, but then there were uh, occasions of uh, uh, serious recidivism uh, with the Chinese. Uh, sometimes they make a commitment, and then you get information that que that raises questions about whether they were honoring it. And you know, we had these kinds of questions, uh, both w with respect to Pakistan uh, and with respect to Iran, and also North Korea was an important factor, also. And so, you know, after Jiang Zemin Clinton summit, it wasn't all you know where you know we've we've solved this problem. It's it, it was a recurring problem, and this was constantly. Uh, part of it. Um, you know, but in uh, May 98, uh, you had the Indian and Pakistani uh, nuclear weapons tests. Um, and, and can you just talk from your lifetime of experience working on arms control and nonproliferation, what a huge moment that was for the nonproliferation community to have these two breakout nuclear powers actually test their devices in a very public way? This was, this was a huge setback. I mean, it, it was not as if it came as such huge surprise. I mean, uh, the Indians conducted a nuclear explosion uh, in 1974. They called it a peaceful nuclear explosion. That's a kind of funny, funny term. It's a nuclear weapon test uh, that they said would be put to uh, peaceful use. It never was, of course. Uh, so, and then this uh, Indian test led to an acceleration of a Pakistani program, and they, you know, were pursuing this in a very, very vigorous way. They hadn't conducted any tests, uh, but then the Indians decided, uh, with the uh, Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, in power, that they were going to finally uh, go forward uh, and uh, and have a an overt nuclear weapons program, and they conducted this. Uh, test in May. The, it actually, it was five tests in uh, May '98. Uh, unfortunately, followed uh, to about two weeks later by uh, Pakistani tests. They actually tested six devices, uh, five to have parity with the uh, India's uh, May tests, and one uh, to uh, uh, to be uh, to offset the 1974 test. Um, and so, you know, both uh, India and Pakistan, these rivals, uh, which had fought uh, three, uh, you know, wars, uh, they were um, yeah, they were now engaged in an overt nuclear arms competition, and uh, the United States uh, wanted to do what we could uh, to kind of to ensure um, that this would be a very restrained competition, if not stopped altogether. Uh, and it turns out that one of our closest allies in wanting to uh, achieve a more restrained, stable situation was China. And uh, I remember very well uh, a few days after the tests, there was going to be a uh, foreign ministers meeting of the P5, the five permanent members of the Security Council. This was going to be in, uh, in Geneva. Madeleine Albright uh, was the U.S. Secretary of State at the time. Uh, and I was sent over to negotiate a communique with the other, uh, with my P5 uh, counterparts. Uh, it turns out my Chinese counterpart uh, was uh, my main uh, interlocutor. We essentially drafted uh, the statement, the two of you and together, then, and then sold it uh, to the uh, to the others. Um, 
And then the, the ministers the next day came in. We stayed up all night, but the next day the ministers came in and they, they agreed to this uh, statement. Then about a week or so later, uh, there was uh, a meeting in New York of the UN Security Council, and uh, they adopted, I think it was Resolution 1172, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and there, too, uh, the United States and China worked uh, very uh, closely together. So what would <coughs> you say... I mean, I'm sure working up all night with your Chinese counterpart wasn't high of your greatest things to do, but what do you think incentivized the foreign ministry and the Chinese leadership to really work on this issue in a way that, while it might have been personally kind of very painful to spend all this time on it, but for the policy ends was, was incredibly worthwhile in, in the interests of U.S. security? Well, China uh, d didn't want India uh, to uh, become a nuclear power rival and uh, very much wanted to constrain uh, India's uh, capabilities. Uh, it was less concerned about Pakistan, which China, you know, felt was a, uh, a strong ally, uh, but it wanted to damp down this competition for fear that it could lead to a competition with India uh, in a nuclear area. Um, so, you know, that's why I think it was the main, the main incentive. Also, you know, the Chinese, uh, they liked the idea of uh, the United States and China being the two powers that were having this, uh, you know, major influence on these uh, world events. They, they, they liked being in that class. In, in the one hand, they like the G2, the idea that the United States and China are um, shaping world events. On the other hand, sometimes they shirk from the responsibility of what the G2 means for them and what, the, what their role is. Exactly. But uh, do you think the, the previous uh, many weeks and months that you spent in Beijing in 97 helped your kind of personal relationship with your Chinese counterpart or with, with the foreign ministry in which they felt like, okay, we don't like the dentist, but at least we know what we're getting with Bob Einhorn? As I said, I, I was going to China six times a year I was meeting them in New York. I was meeting them in Washington. Uh, you know, this was a very intense uh, series of interactions. Uh, I got to know these people very well. Uh, I think you know, they had a love-hate relationship with me, maybe more hate than love, uh, but they got to know me, uh, and I, th I hope they saw me as someone who would be a straight shooter with them, would not deceive them, if I said something was not possible for us, it really was not possible. If I said something was necessary for the United States, they would understood that was necessary. And so, um, you know, I think we had a good professional uh, relationship. And on that, I mean, you started dealing with the Chinese at a time when there wasn't a lot of expertise on nonproliferation. Uh, then you spent many years kind of working with your counterparts. How would you say you saw that? Uh, change in their ability to kind of talk about these issues and understand them, maybe kind of culminating in this UN Security Council resolution and their importance on it. Yeah, no, they they made very rapid progress in the professionalism of their uh, diplomats in this area of nonproliferation. I mean, they had virtually no knowledge uh, before '92. They, uh, you know, uh, they were not members of the NPT. Uh, they didn't know the vocabulary <laughs> and all the rest. Uh, and they came uh, very far, very fast uh, through the 90s. Uh, they began to assign some of the most talented diplomats to this uh, portfolio. Um, and, uh, and it showed. 
and it's continued to show. They've still had they they still have you know top notch uh, diplomats uh, in this area. Which isn't to say that every interaction with these diplomats is pleasant or uh, necessarily friendly, but at least on the other side of the table, you have someone who's competent and, and is knowledgeable about the issues. That, that's right, and it's not to say that uh, China's performance has always been stellar. I mean, there are many blemishes um, in their uh, record, uh, even until now. Uh, they have uh, good export controls on the books. Uh, they have a good procedure internally. The question is, how much do they put into enforcing their controls? How much resources do they put into uh, establishing relationships between their central authorities in Beijing and their customs offices in the field and all of that? And there have been real lapses. And uh, you know, for countries like Pakistan, um, you know, these are strategic relationships that China has that are difficult to. Uh, interfere with, and so you see lapses in their performance, you know, from time to time. But I think that the trend line has been positive from the beginning of the 90s until now, uh, and part of it is because you know they've assigned uh, you know very good personnel uh, to this uh, portfolio. You had mentioned that your Chinese counterpart saw you as someone who was reliable, um, a straight shooter. Did you feel like when you were dealing with your Chinese foreign ministry counterparts, the same was true? That is, if they said, oh, China could never do this or never agree to the statement, would they then change that the next day? How was that? I'm not asking you to name specific names mm -hmm. of individuals, but you know, the Chinese diplomats are sometimes put in an awkward position of not knowing what the policy is or not giving a whole lot of latitude. Chinese negotiators are on an incredibly tight leash, as you know. How did you find that kind of interaction? You know, I think... Uh, the uh, my Chinese interlocutors were reliable and predictable up to a point. I mean, they were operating um, under tight instructions. Uh, they didn't have perfect information. Uh, I'm sure within the U.S. bureaucracy, information was passed uh, much more freely than it than, than information is passed within the Chinese bureaucracy. So uh, my uh, foreign ministry counterparts often didn't really know the story and were being given instructions that were very tight and, and, and constraining. Uh, but within those parameters, uh, I think they tried to be upfront with me. And I guess I, you've had a lot of experience then with a lot of different countries, um, North Koreans, Iranians, Russians. How would you put dealing with Chinese officials in this context with dealing with uh, a range of other other officials? Well, it's interesting. Uh, in many of these countries, uh, because of the importance that arms control and nonproliferation has, uh, has taken on, um, the foreign ministries and governments uh, tend to um, put some of their best people uh, in these areas. Uh, so uh, when I've dealt with Iranians, for example, I was involved in the negotiations on the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal. Uh, we dealt with some very, very capable diplomats. Uh, their foreign minister, Javad Zarif, is a very, very capable diplomat, educated in the United States. Uh, North Koreans, um, these uh, were, you know, very talented uh, North Koreans as well. Um, Soviets, Russians, the same. Uh, so, um, you know, I've been fortunate to deal with a pretty high caliber of foreign diplomat. And I guess just stepping back, and you've spent many uh, decades on this, 
where would you see China today on this issue of nonproliferation and, and on security? And I think there's some areas where U.S.-China interests align and others where they don't. How do you see it based on your, your time dealing with, with the PRC? Well, uh, one, one of the difficulties uh, in dealing with them on nonproliferation uh, is that even though they had internalized uh, the value of nonproliferation for their own security, uh, sometimes this value could be offset by other uh, considerations. Uh, a strong bilateral relationship they didn't want to interrupt, you know, for example. Uh, so uh, even though in principle nonproliferation was a good thing for China, uh, Pakistani security and the re bilateral relationship were important enough uh, that uh, China was prepared to make certain exceptions for its friend. Uh, also, uh, e even though they had begun to absorb this uh, norm, um, uh, you know, often we saw that their performance on nonproliferation waxed and waned depending on the state of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. Uh, so um, when uh, in the run-up to Jiang Zemin's visit to the White House, things were fine and we were able to get important commitments from the Chinese. Uh, after a major arms sale to Taiwan, things, uh, things uh, became pretty bumpy. Uh, after the accidental bombing of China's embassy in, uh, in Belgrade, uh, they uh, discontinued any U.S.-China nonproliferation dialogue for 16 months. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's been a challenge uh, uh, because of the uh, ups and downs based on the bilateral relationship. But, you know, again, I think the trend line is, is positive. Um, but, uh, you know, recidivism is uh, always around the corner. Well, Bob, thanks so much for all of your long years of service. This is an area where I really think uh, when you went into this in the early 90s in dealing with China, the outcome was by no means certain as to where Chinese policy would end up. Uh, I think in a lot of areas of Chinese policy today, there's a lot of uncertainty about where China wants to go. Uh, but I think in this area, you, you've really been able to change their internal calculus, which, as you say, it's not a 100% perfect record, but it has um, really made the U.S. more secure in not having to worry about uh, Chinese nonproliferation in a lot of different areas around the world. A, a takeaway I have you know, from the years I worked with the Chinese on this is that it's absolutely indispensable to be in constant contact with them, to engage with them. Uh, when you see a problem, raise it. Uh, when you see a problematic transfer uh, uh, that they're involved in, uh, get information from the U.S. intelligence community that you can use with the Chinese. Uh, raise it with them, press them on it, uh, threaten sanctions if necessary, impose sanctions if necessary, uh, but not just to punish the Chinese, to give yourself leverage to try to negotiate uh, some kind of a better arrangement. Uh, and this was, um, I think, the key to whatever success we had in the 90s. Uh, we were prepared to engage with them all the time. We were in their face all the time. They resented it. They didn't like it. Uh, but I think having to deal with this on this um, uh, energized the bureaucracy. It became an issue that they had to deal with internally. They had to face up to this. 
Um, and that's the only way we made uh, progress. Thanks again, Bob. Great to see you. Okay. Thank you, James. Robert Einhorn, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.